Hi everyone, my name is Grace Hollinsworth and I'm so glad to be with each of you this morning. Hope you are all well. I'm gonna be reading our scripture, which is from Mark chapter one and the verses are nine through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, we are just so grateful for the gift of your son and to learn about his baptism and the declaration you made over him and just what a gift that is to each of us and to the world as well, Lord. I just lift up um, Cameron as he brings our message today and each person um, tuning in this morning that you will open our hearts to receive your spirit and your truth, God. We praise you for who you are and are so grateful for your love for each of us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right. Hey, everyone. It's Cameron. It's great to be with you over the old interwebs here. Uh, ch -ch -ch. Hey, on that note, if we know that COVID's weird and um, as we're just slowly making our transition back into holding in-person gatherings, it can be easy for folks who are you know, beginning to explore being a part of this community uh, through online stuff uh, to kind of slip through the cracks. So if you've begun, you know, engaging these videos, if you're starting to wonder, would I like to con consider making this like my community, especially as things start to return to some some semblance of normal, um, email me. I'd, I'd love to know who you are. I'd love to get you connected with our newsletter and on and on and on. Don't just uh, float out there in the, the ether. Um, we'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged in however we can. So that's just a little plug there. Other than that, we're continuing our uh, study through the gospel according to Mark now in our third week. And especially in this first chapter, we're just kind of inching our way like little by little, just a couple verses at a time because this opening chapter or so, it's so dense and it's so packed with so much important stuff that sets the table for what's going to come later that we just want to do a thorough job. Uh, so you've heard the passage read today. We've got three verses from chapter one, verses nine through 11, and we're just going to jump in. Um, last week, uh, Josh did a great job helping us just reflect on the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, this sort of Elijah-like figure who uh, was prophesied by Isaiah, as Mark mentions, and even other biblical prophets, to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, the long-promised one who's going to put everything right for Israel. And John, John worked as evidence um, that God had been at work and was still working to bring this eternal plan to completion. He hadn't forgotten about them. He'd been working on up ahead of them, and he was going to fulfill his prophecies. He's going to make good on his promises. And now one of the most significant days in that plan unfolding was here. Um, John was baptizing folks who wanted to repent of their sins, um, believing that, that with the Messiah coming shortly after him, um, they needed to prepare their hearts for that day. Um, 
and that the Messiah was going to come and that he wouldn't just baptize them with water, but he'd be one who could baptize with the very Holy Spirit of God. So who is this guy going to be? John has set up this ministry. Of course, Mark's already spoiled it for us. Thanks, Mark, in verse (laughs) 1, telling us the story he's telling is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the good news. Um, So we know it's going to be Jesus. But how Mark introduces him is is very interesting. And it raises the question, like, what, what were people expecting the Messiah to look like? If there's this growing little group that's gathered around John and believe, like, Messiah's coming. We better get ready. We better repent. We better get clean. What were they expecting? What would you expect in this situation? What would he look like? What would he sound like? What was his background going to be? Would he be a religious teacher? Would he be a war hero? Uh, Would he be a philosopher? Would he be some sort of hulked out muscle man kind of dude? Would he be mute and mysterious? Would he be, I don't know, would he carry a sword? Um, If you could orchestrate, if you were in the position of being able to orchestrate all of human history, if you were God, to make the perfect kind of introduction onto the scene um, as as the Messiah, what would you arrange? How would you set the thing up? Well, here's how God did it. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we'll pause there. And this verse, though it's short, just a few phrases, it tells us a lot about Jesus if we have the eyes to see. First, we just get to see the humility of, of the Son. We've already, Mark's already told us that this, this Jesus is the Son of God. Let's see the humility of the Son. We see that he's from Nazareth of Galilee. And it's interesting that he, he mentions that. That's about the only detail Mark gives us about Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't give us the things that the other gospel writers do. There's not, no mention of Jesus being the eternal word of God who was with God but was God, like John gives us in John 1. Um, We don't get the Davidic genealogy that establishes Jesus as like a distant but rightful member of the line of David. So he's he's the right one to be the king uh, like Matthew does. Um, He doesn't give us an extended sort of prophetic, you know, background to the birth of Jesus and the whole incarnation story and the virgin birth and the prophecies that were around it and all that like Luke does. Mark takes us right here. He says, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. <laughs> That's it. That's all we get. And all those other gospels, they're telling us, of course, true things. But Mark is, is helping us just smack us with this detail here that, that this Jesus was just a man from Nazareth. All the other stuff's true too. But to, to the natural eyes, just this man from Nazareth. What was Nazareth? Nazareth was the super small, like podunk village um, in the region of Galilee in Israel, near the Galilean Sea. And it's never, ever mentioned in the Old Testament or in the sort of contemporary Roman literature of, of the time. Nobody mentions it. No one mentions it except for the New Testament. And based on the geography of the, of, of the region there in Galilee, we know that it almost certainly would have been just like this small agricultural rural town made up of very poor people um, left alone by anyone who, who didn't have like an immediate connection to them. There was no reason for anyone to come to Nazareth. Its population in the first century was 
potentially as few as about 100 people. <laughs> uh, that's, that's our best guess at what Nazareth was like at the time. Um, Oregon is known for like actually having quite a few like little tiny towns. I was doing some Googling. Uh, ever heard of Mitchell, Oregon? It's not the smallest town, um, but it's about two hours from Bend. Uh, population's about 130 people. Um, it's just one of those places like, okay, it exists. It's in our state. People, there's people there. They're beloved children of God too. Uh, but I don't really care or know anything about them. Unless someone's, you know, unless I have family there or a friend that happens to be from there or whatever, the, the odds are small. Um, it's that kind of place. It's like, yeah, great. It's, it's there, but I'm, I'm never going to go through there. I, I'm never going to spend time in Mitchell, Oregon. And if you're from Mitchell, Oregon, listening to us right now, welcome. We're <laughs> so glad, so glad that you're, you're listening. But it's just that kind of place. It's just this tiny, tiny town. Had no reputation. In fact, in the Gospel of John, if you remember this story, John records that, that when, when this man Nathaniel was invited by his brother to come follow Jesus, Nathaniel's re- response was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, why would I follow a dude from Nazareth? That's the kind of place. Um, a few other details we get about, about Jesus. Um, Luke tells us in chapter 3 that he was about 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. So we can insert that here in Mark. Okay, Jesus is about 30 when he shows up uh, for this baptism. Mark 6.3, we'll, we'll spend more time talking about this when we get to it in chapter 6, but I just want to note it now. It tells us that he was a carpenter. Um, so Jesus was probably this, a woodworking craftsman who provided a really valuable service to Nazareth and possibly to the surrounding area. And, and just, just as a side, have you ever thought about that as a sidebar? Jesus spent up to age 30, a couple of decades, as a carpenter in a nowhere town. Um, I don't know if you've reflected on that much. We all talk about, oh yeah, Jesus carpenter, this and that. But, but can you see how much dignity this lends to your job <laughs> like the work of growing just in a skill or a trade whatever the color of your collar may be if you're contributing to sort of the cultivation of our world you are this is still connected all the way back to the original task god gave humans in genesis 1 which was to fill and multiply and then subdue and cultivate the raw good material that god made and make it even better. That's, that's a key part of the human task is to take the raw material and build houses and build cities and build technology and, and, and subdue the earth, make it even better, even more beautiful. Tragically, humans end up <laughs> destroying it half the time as well, um, but just doing good, honest, like faithful work, even the work of a carpenter, even in a place of absolute no repute, is not a waste. That is good. Jesus's 20 years as a carpenter were not wasted. They were not meaningless, and they weren't like some sort of time of sinful distraction from the important stuff he was supposed to be doing. They were his work. So I hope that's an encouragement to you, whatever your job is. Um, Jesus dignifies it. Jesus dignifies it. Don't let that point slip past you. Um, but 
okay, so besides Jesus's parentage, um, his distant connection to the lineage of David, we get like one story of him as a boy going to the temple and one of the other gospels. Other than those things, we pretty much know nothing about Jesus's life leading up to this moment in Mark, this moment of baptism. And that's interesting. That's interesting. But one other detail jumps out here in this first verse. Um, you would not expect Jesus, knowing that we've already, we already know he's the son of God, <laughs> we wouldn't expect him to be baptized. Like, like if anyone is going to cleanse the other people, um, it should be him, right? <laughs> like Jesus should be the one doing the cleansing. Um, also, Jesus isn't in like a power struggle with John. Like, oh, I'm the, re- okay, I'm the real prophet now that's shown up. And now we're going to kind of put, put this little um, you know, child's play thing aside. Um, he validates John's ministry and he submits himself to be baptized by John. Why? Um, well, it doesn't tell us exactly why, but I think the best guess is that this was an act of solidarity with sinful humanity. Um, certainly we could say Jesus had no need to repent <laughs> for his own account, no need to be cleansed or for- forgiven of his own sins because he had none. Um, but he identifies himself with the rest of his people. He identifies himself with his sisters and his brothers, those who are called to repentance and who are called to throw themselves at the feet of God for the forgiveness of their sins. He says, I'm one of you. He validates John's ministry and he receives the baptism for himself. The picture we get here in this one simple verse is that this Jesus, whoever he is, it's all mysterious now. He's a man of humility. He's a man of humble origins. That's important. And from our earthly standpoints, if if, if we were thinking about how to tell this story and craft this history for Jesus, we'd probably go, this is a weird start, God. I'm not sure what you're doing here. But it's what God chose. It's how God chose this story to begin. So that's the son baptized. Now we see in verse 10, the spirit descends. Verse 10 says, when he came up out of the water, so Jesus is baptized, he's raised up out of the water. Um, Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And this word for seeing the heavens ripped open, it's this, this Greek word that being torn, being split apart, being separated. It's this really powerful impact word um, from the Greek verb schizo. And so the sun sees the heavens immediately ripped open. And this is probably a reference to Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 2 that says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. That's the text that's behind that beautiful song Josh White wrote. Oh, that you'd come, tear open the sky, that you'd come down. You know that song? That's what we're singing when we sing that. And this is what Jesus witnesses, this reference to Isaiah. And this idea, the idea here is that, that, um, this imagery of the heavens being opened and God coming down, there's fire and there's this and there's that and there's the Holy Spirit and God's coming down. This is eschatological end times kind of stuff. This is once in a generation kind of stuff. This is perhaps once in human history kind of stuff. 
And like Isaiah says, we, we know that God has in fact come down. The Son of God has come down. He's incarnated. He's walking around in human flesh, fully God and fully man. But we see the Spirit of God coming and descending like a dove. We're going to get to that more in just a second. And we see the voice of God the Father speaking out from heaven in the next verse. This moment of where God does come down, the sky is open. It's crazy. This is a moment of of epochal significance, you know. It doesn't get more significant than this. Um, So the heavens are opened, and then we see that the Spirit descends on Jesus. John had just talked about this one who's going to come after him, who's even greater than him, who is going to baptize not just with water, but with the Spirit. And now we see the Spirit of God in the form of this, like like a dove, coming and resting on him, upon Jesus, onto Jesus, even into Jesus, equipping him for that work. And this is picking up another theme from the prophet Isaiah, where, where the Messiah is said in multiple places at multiple times by Isaiah to be one who is uniquely empowered by the Spirit of God. And so is Jesus. So the Son is baptized, the Spirit descends, and next in verse 11, we see that the Father approves. It says, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the, it doesn't tell us who the voice is, but it's very clear. Speaking to His Son, it is the Father God. And he declares a couple of things. He declares that Jesus is the beloved son. And once again, he's not just, God has not just chosen arbitrary words here, but even his, his speech here is referencing uh, Psalm 2, 7, which says, I'll tell of the, de- the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And interestingly, that there's clearly overlap in this language. Most people think it's a reference. Um, but it's, it's very likely that this Psalm 2-7 was meant to be read at sort of royal coronations. Whenever a new king would ascend the throne of Israel, this psalm would be read to them. Um, and so if you know your Bible, if you have the eyes to see it, what God is declaring here is not simply, you are my son, though he is. Um, it's, it's a kingly announcement. He's giving his kingly seal. It's a coronation. The king is here. Recognize him. And then the second phrase, God says, with you I am well pleased. Which again, I'm sorry for all these. I didn't invent them. Is a reference to Isaiah 42.1. So much Isaiah here in Mark 1. It says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And then he goes on, I've put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. God is declaring that this who Isaiah prophesied about, this is Jesus. He is the servant. He is the one whom my soul delights in, and I have put my spirit upon him, and he will be the one who will bring forth justice to the nations. So the divine stamp of approval is placed on Jesus here in the most powerful way imaginable. God breaks through in power to announce that this Jesus is his beloved son, the one who pleases him. And the implication is that this Jesus is the one fit to represent and carry the work of God forward. 
Like the, pro- the kingdom program is in Jesus' hands moving forward and it pleases the Father for this to be the case. And the Spirit's going to empower it. And just note in these three verses the way the dignity of Jesus keeps ratcheting up here. First, he's just Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's kind of nobody from nowhere. Then he's the Spirit-empowered one as the Spirit visibly descends upon him. And then he is declared to be the unique Son of God and the King by the Father. All in the span of these three verses, we're getting just this massive ceremony announcing who he is. And to, to, to note something really important, this will be kind of a long aside here, um, but it's super important. This is not, this story here is not the first time uh, that the father declared his love for the son. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that there's something earlier in Mark. Obviously there isn't. We've just read the first couple of verses already. Um, and I'm not referencing something in one of the other gospels either. But listen to the words of John 17, 24, the high priestly prayer. When Jesus is, the the night of his betrayal, he's preparing his disciples. He gives them this amazing prayer over them. Verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me. And listen to this. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What we're actually getting here at this baptism scene where the son is baptized, the spirit descends, and the father approves is a window into the eternal, like from eternity past, the eternal love of the triune God. This passage and and the parallels in the other Gospels are are, are one of the key data points in the Bible for coming to understand the nature of God as a tri-unity, a three-part unity, a trinity. And since the beginning of the church, Christians have understood the Bible to be painting like this beautifully complex picture of the nature of God, like three persons, okay? Father, Son, Spirit, who are each distinct. Father's not the Son, Son's not the Spirit but who nonetheless are one unified single God and God alone. God is one, but God is also somehow three. That's been the consistent claim of Christians. And one of the things that sets apart Christianity from essentially every other religion and every Christian cult or heretical movement or whatever, um, the Trinity. And, And note that uh, like many commentators point this out, Alan Cole, I like the way he put it. He says, um, comparing the baptism scene to Genesis 1, he says, As in the book of Genesis, God created by his word and through the spirit. Okay. So it was fitting that at the very commencement of God's new work of recreation, what he's doing through Jesus, there would be the same operation of the whole Godhead here on the banks. God speaks his word again and again. The spirit is brooding over the waters hovering like a dove, just as in Genesis 1. So the, 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 this key Trinitarian point points us back to the key Trinitarian moment at the creation, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. 
And this idea of Trinity is found all over the pages of the Bible, though it's shrouded in all kinds of mystery, and the word Trinity is actually never used in the Bible. But the early church, recognizing this is a crucial piece of doctrine to preserve and to make sure it's protected, they convened to sort of give definition to it, to sort of protect, like put up guardrails to protect the most essential boundaries around how we're supposed to properly think about the Trinity in what ultimately became the Nicene Creed. If you haven't read the Nicene Creed, go read it. It's amazing. But the Nicene Creed helps us hang on to what is most essential to understand about the Trinity, about the nature of God, about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But right now, I, I already feel it because I feel it in me. <laughs> like, uh, the Trinity, whoa, okay, interesting. Maybe not that interesting. Maybe just bizarre. <laughs> like I, for many of us, um, there's this idea that the Trinity is just sort of like, yeah, I think I'm supposed to believe that. I know for some reason Christians have found this important, but I'm not really sure why and I'm not sure what pragmatic benefit it actually brings. It might actually just make things more weird and confusing as I try to think about God or pray to God or whatever. Um, as, But <laughs> for as abstract and as confusing as the Trinity can seem, um, it's actually, I'm convinced, one of the most important ideas that distinguishes Christianity from all other belief systems. And, and it has implications that touch on almost everything else that we believe. The connections are endless. Incidentally, uh, you've probably heard about, do I have my book? Uh, I think I have it in my, yep, in my backpack here. Um, a group of us from the church have been reading this book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, uh, by Michael Reeves. Um, just so happened to be here right now. We're doing a little book club, a couple groups of us. It's an amazing book. And, and one of Reeves's main goals in this book is to um, help us move from thinking about the Trinity as just this kind of weird curiosity added onto our faith to understanding it as one of the most beautiful, joyful, exciting features of our faith. I don't know if you feel that way about the Trinity, I don't know if I'm going to convince you of that right now, but um, if you want to think more deeply about it, this is a great place uh, to start thinking about the Trinity. Just to give one point here, one point of importance, we could talk from a million different angles. Here's one. We believe that one good way to describe God is to say God is love. You've probably said it. I've said it. Probably people who aren't even Christians in any discernible sense have said, oh yeah, God is love. Uh, that's biblical. That's scriptural. But it is only because God is Trinity that he can intelligibly be said to be love. Like the title Father, the fact that God chooses to disclose himself as Father isn't just a like this little cute thing. But in his very being, as part of his existence from eternity past, he has been a Father who has loved a son. Like God is a giver, a nurturer, a lover who gives life. And he was this even before he ever created. You and I don't really have like identities like this. We're not God, surprise, surprise. Our identities are so malleable. Like, okay, I'll even just take me as a father. Cameron is a father, yes. Okay, I'm a, I have two children, Lane and Ezra. If you guys watch this video, I love you guys so much. Um, but I haven't always been a father. Uh, four years and some change ago, I was not a father. 
Uh, I thought about being a father. I wondered if I'd be a good one. Jury's still out on that. Um, but I, that wasn't a meaningful part of my identity, even though I wanted to be, even though I could, you know, the thought of it gave me joy, whatever. Uh, but I wasn't a father. One day I became one. Now, by virtue of having these two children, I'm a father. Same thing for being a husband. That's a big part of my identity. Uh, but I wasn't always a husband. Um, God forbid, like, gosh, something were to happen to my wife, I might not always be a father or I'm, uh, a husband. Um, it's not intrinsic to who I am, though I love being a husband and I want to be the absolute best one I can be. Um, and going on, I, I played sports. I played basketball in high school. You know, that was a hugely important part of my identity. I'm a basketball player. I'm a small forward. Uh, not anymore. <laughs> At least not in a way anybody else would want to see. Um, my point is that we, our, our identities are so malleable and they come and go. Um, they're so changeable. Uh, they're so dependent on circumstance. Um, but the God of the universe, not only is he just, he is who he is. He is consistent in and of himself. Um, but he is, he's not arbitrarily a father. He has existed as father to the son for eternity past. There was never a time in which the son was not receiving the love of the father. And never a time when, the God, when God the father was not lavishing his love on the son and on and on and on. Um, and it's really important to note that God wasn't dependent on creation to be those things. Like, they're just who he is. Um, he's the father, but he's also the son, the one who's beloved and the one who receives the love of the father and gives it back in joy. And he's also the spirit through whom he makes his love known. And Reeves, commenting on this very baptism passage, notes that, quote, the spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son and the Father inflaming their love and so binding them together. To risk just repeating over and over again, I just want to say again, God did not become a loving, life-giving, nurturing God when he created. He always has been and always will be. It's who he is all the way down. It's not a hat he's trying on. It's who he is at core because he's a trinity. It's amazing. So at one point, I'll just quote Reeves one more time. He says, the irony could not be thicker. What we assume would be a dull or a peculiar irrelevance turns out to be the source of all that is good in Christianity. Neither a problem nor a technicality. The triune being of God is the vital oxygen of Christian life enjoy. And the more I'm learning about this, the more I'm convinced he is right about that. So there's a lot more we could say about this. Uh, of course, it's the Trinity. It's mysterious. It's huge. But we're going to leave it there for now. But the baptism scene, to, to we're going to conclude now. It, it not only gives us this picture of the Trinity, just in all its beauty and harmony working together, um, but it also points us ahead to the cross. And what I mean is that whereas, whereas here in Mark 1, Jesus identified with sin, sinful humanity in their need for a cleansing baptism of repentance. Three short years later, as he culminates his ministry, Jesus would go to the cross. 
And, and he wouldn't simply identify with sinful humanity in this sense. He would take the place of sinful humanity. The ultimate purpose behind his incarnation, behind taking on flesh, taking on this carnality, he would take the place of sinful humanity. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, you've heard this before, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And even at this moment of baptism, three years before that point, the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit was working together in mutual love, flowing out into their love for their beloved creation, for people dead, set on a mission to save, to heal, to redeem, to forgive, to restore, to reclaim. And over the course of Mark, it's going to be clear that God is not just, you know, oh, man, I guess I got to do this. Oh, this kind of hand-wringing. Oh, I'm, I guess we'll see what happens. He is barreling towards the cross out of his great love. In his book, The Pursuing God, I love this. Josh Butler says, Jesus is an active agent, not a hapless victim. He's not coerced or manipulated to the cross against his will. Jesus boldly declares, <clears throat> no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he goes on of his own volition. Jesus goes of his own volition to accomplish this purpose. He's taking down the destructive power of sin, of death, of hell. Jesus is a lion. The cross is his prey. And Jesus is constantly saying things like the son of man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. While the disciples, confused and blind, rebuke him, saying, may it never be. While we see the cross as a detour, Jesus sees it as a destination. And that is exactly right. This moment of baptism is the beginning of his ministry, but it, in his identification with sinful humanity, we, we are already encouraged to look ahead to the end point of his incarnation, which is he goes to the cross for you. He goes to the cross for me. And it's not an angry father, you know, divine child abuse you know towards the son it's the father and the son and the spirit in unison working together as the triune god yes letting the son take the wrath owed to sin into himself that he might offer forgiveness salvation eternal life a place in his family a place in his kingdom and all and on and on and on and on the blessings and benefits of life with God. So, as we look back on his baptism, may we celebrate the God who is Trinity, and because he's Trinity, he's love, and because he's love, he would send the Son to die in our place. This is how Jesus begins his ministry, and it is good news, friends, that this is the kind of God that we serve. The one who already served us first, already loved us first, but we didn't deserve it. It's just who he is and who he always has been and who he always will be. So that is a roundabout way to say that is the baptism of Jesus. That's Mark 1, 9 through 11. 
Um, may this week we reflect on these truths. May we come back to this text again and again. May we pray over it. May we discuss it with our communities. Um, may it shape us. So I love you. Thank you for the time. Um, we'll see you next time.